Hello and welcome to High Shelf Gaming Podcast. I'm the host, David Gillespie. Every week, I'm joined by my co-host, Rich Wisneski, and we bring on guests to talk about role-playing games and board games and gaming conventions. If this is up your alley, feel free to download, listen, subscribe, and please rate us on iTunes. It really helps people find us. You can also connect with us on Twitter, at High Shelf Gaming, and join our Facebook group, High Shelf Gaming Podcast. It's a closed group, but click to join. We're friendly to everybody, and we'll get you added in. We also have a Discord server to talk games with us all you like. Hey everyone, David Gillespie here again, and as always, I am joined by the co-host with the most, Rich Wisneski. Dave, glad to be here. I got the Canadian tux on, just pulled it out of the dry cleaners. It's hot and pressed, ready for this great interview tonight. Woohoo! Yeah, and today we are joined by a new guest. I was super excited to have you on the show, Cody Pondsmith. Man, welcome, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Yeah, definitely. And uh, Cody, will you kind of give a sense for the audience, your kind of gamer background or your gamer chops, and then uh, we'll get into the the topic introduction next. Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah, I I started really young because I, you know, was raised by two game designers. (laughs) So I started role playing when I was, you know, real young, like 10 or 10 or 11. Nice. And uh, I got in on, on, you know, my family's products first. You know, I think I started on Teenagers from Outer Space uh, with a bunch of my friends, moved on to cyberpunk, uh, had a few horrible experiences in cyberpunk, (laughs) as everyone should. Yes. Mekton, you know, I went through uh, i think almost i think i've been running almost all of our products which you know makes sense then sure, yeah i branched out a bit i spent possibly way more time than i'm proud of in pathfinder and spent way more money than i would have ever expected oh yeah they have so many books spending a lot of money there is easy but you know i had an amazing i had amazing times with it so i'm happy to have done it right, right. but i kind of you know Roughly got into game design quite a while ago with a with a project that was kind of a, a pet project for me, and when the opportunity came up to do Witcher, I, I jumped for it, which is awesome. Yeah, so today that's what we're talking about. We're talking about this product you just made, and Cody, I have to thank you for coming on the show. Uh, we have a lot of really interesting, fun guests on the show. You're actually our first game designer. So, wow. but real quick, kind of talk about Witcher RPG for the folks that maybe are uninitiated. Maybe they've heard of the game, the video game, but, you know, kind of kind of set the stage for us on what what's going on with Witcher RPG and, and maybe a bit about how it came about. That would be really nice to hear. Okay, I guess I should start with, um, you know, we over at Artel Soaring Games, we've been working with CD Projekt Red, the people who do the Witcher video game for a real long time now, because we're working together on uh, Cyberpunk 2077 to some extent. And, uh, you know, that led to when they were looking for somebody to do a tabletop role-playing game for Witcher, you know, they came to us and basically said, you know, are you interested? Do you know anybody in the industry who might be interested who would be able to really do a good product? Mimi. And, uh, yeah. yeah, well, it. It's it's kind of funny because um, actually top view first for anybody who doesn't know out there the Witcher is this uh, you know vast 
multimedia spanning franchise. It's a it's a dark fantasy franchise out of Poland, r- originally written in a series of books by a man named Andrzej Sapkowski, which I probably did not pronounce particularly well. We when we went into this project and we started really looking at it, we were we were told something that I think sums it up for people sort of outside of Eastern Europe, which is we were told by uh, by CDPR that Witcher is like the Lord of the Rings of Eastern Europe, basically. Oh, like it. It has the same sort of pull as that in in you know most Eastern European countries. So we definitely a big sort of project to take on. And I was just gonna say the Witcher vibe is so much darker than oh yeah than Lord of the Rings. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh yeah. Now the Witcher, you know, we are dealing with a. A really, you know, fairly, fairly realistic, straightforward medieval world that got magic without really ever expecting it and has almost no concept of what to do with it. A world where, you know, the race lines between humans and, as they're called, non-humans or the elder races is very distinctly drawn and usually leads to race violence. Um, You know, a world where our main protagonist, Geralt of Rivia, is basically a... I, I like to think of him as sort of a mutant super soldier who is basically more or less kidnapped as a small child, put through grueling and torturous training, and then mutated through a process that only one in four children survives. I believe that sounds like every Polish household. <laughs> <laughs> Survival uh, fittest, man. Yeah. Yeah. So getting back from there, Mike... Uh, you know, my father, Mike Pondsmith, is not super into fantasy. He really doesn't do fantasy that much. You know, he says he burned out on it young. So he does the sci-fi side of things, you know, much more. So he was not tremendously interested in it. To when they were kind of talking to us about the cyberpunk stuff, they actually sent us a, a copy of Witcher 2 as proof of concept that they could work on cyberpunk. And I played it. Um, and I played it all the way through. I played it through twice because I didn't like the world the world state I got at the end of the first run. <laughs> Natural. That is the right answer. You go all the way to the end. You're like, no, 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 no. We're starting over. We're doing this completely different because I want a different ending. <laughs> I love it. Oh, yeah. To, to, the, to this day, it is actually, I think, the only game I have ever finished twice. I actually, you know, I played through that. We learned that there were books in the first place. Lisa started reading the books. I started reading the books a little bit later. And we both got really fascinated by the franchise and the world. So when the opportunity came up, you know, I jumped on it because, you know, I just really loved the setting. I've heard some of your interviews and folks, it is clear. You're telling me now that you love the setting. Just listening to your passion on some of the other interviews that you've done, uh, like the interviews you did at Gen Con and some of the other places, it's clear that you and Lisa both really poured yourselves into this setting and you get it at a very deep level. So I, I, hats off to you, man. Thank you. We we wanted to make sure that this was, you know, you know, there one, I think one of the biggest problems the Witcher franchise has always had is that it has never been tremendously unified. There have been, you know, a number of media forms. There have been comics. There have been old comics, new comics. There have been, uh, you know, the video games. There has been a TV show. You know, they're getting ready ready to do another TV show, but so much of that is disconnected. You know, um, sure. So much of it. You know, one of the craziest things we ran across as we were going through the project is that 
you know, you would find indiscrepancies and little bits of canon that don't line up between two things. So we'd be going through something in, you know, the video games, or I'd, I'd be going through something in the video games, and I'd come back and I'd, you know, be looking over the books, or I'd talk to Lisa about it because she exhaustively read every single book the minute it came out in English. Wow. Nice. And no, she's amazing. She went through at one point, as we were going through the process, just in the category of, you know, how deep we went on this. She went through every single book that was out in English with a highlighter and highlighted page by page anything that could be even vaguely lore interesting. Wow. Did she start calling everyone around the house character names? I mean, God, when you get that immersed, I could see it happening. Unfortunately, no, but we have had many, we've had many discussions where we just go back and forth on, you know, any number of subjects. It's interesting. You talk about the inconsistencies of the canon, right? Yeah. That like a product like that, that's covering so many different places. Naturally, there's going to be breaks in canon or, or even full on disagreements within the canon, right? Oh yeah. And that really is a mythology thing. Like if you go back and look at mythologies, there's always three different versions of like the Pinocchio story. There's so many different oh. versions of Pinocchio. It's insane. I've had many arguments with some of my friends over bits of Norse mythology. Anyway. Right. No, exactly. Exactly. So it's interesting that even this, which is a relatively new product in terms of, you know, it's not hundreds of years old, like Norse mythology still has already creeped in inconsistencies. So how did you guys focus in and say, all right, we're working with a specific subset of canon. Oh, yeah. How did you filter out some of those sources that might have been disagreements and maybe Yeah, exactly. How did you handle that? It was actually a really weird process because the our goal from the very start was that, you know, we realized that we wanted to, as much as possible, enfold every bit of, of canon that we could. We had people emailing us really early in the project after we announced and, you know, saying, like, you, you do realize that people will buy this game who have never played the video games. <laughs> and, you know, I'm going, yeah, of course, there, there are many, many incredibly well-beloved novels out there and people who are definitely not going to play the video games, but maybe they've exhaustively poured through those novels. Our goal at the end was basically incorporate everything from the canon as much as we were allowed to use, as straight as we were allowed to use it, and basically try to weave that. Because the, the wonderful part is Witcher 1, the video game, is supposed to be a continuance of Geralt's story after the books. Mm. So theoretically, from the beginning of the books to the end of the video games, it's theoretically one timeline. You know, there's been some argument in the fandom one way or the other, but theoretically, it functions as one timeline. Right. So right. what we do is we'd go through and just, you know, top to bottom, we'd be writing out these facts and going through all of these sources and things like that. And, you know, we'd go like, okay, books to games, 80% of it was fine. You know, 80% of it just carried right on. And, you know, you, you'd kind of be like, ah, oh, you know, this thing happens here, and then, like, maybe we can see the effects of it later. Every once in a while, you'd run into those inconsistencies, and, you know, we just kind of have to go, like, okay, either, you know, A, how, how do we kind of fudge this a little to explain why it changed? Because the video games are in a farther timeline. So, you know, maybe some of these in inconsistencies changed because over time, that thing changed. Sure. Or maybe maybe there was some, you know, 
you know, some sort of myth or something in the books or some people thought they, they worked some way in the books. And then over time, they understood how it actually worked. But, you know, in some cases, that's not possible. You know, there are weird little things like, you know, one of the small examples is, you know, that I always say is for anyone who's played the video games, uh, that you'll recognize the Druid Ermion from Witcher 3. The, the Skellige druid who you wind up dealing with and who you obviously know from at some point in Geralt's past. Sure. The, the, the funny part about Ermion is, you know, we talked to CDPR about this because anybody who's read the books knows him by a different name. Oh, wow. They, actually, they actually changed his name in localization because the, the, na- the original Polish name he had would probably not have worked really as well for for english speaking audiences and the the punchline here is that i went back and asked them about his original polish name and they said you know it doesn't really mean anything it's just sort of a name that in polish sounds like a very rural you know kind of name and i kind of pieced together that probably his name originally was something like mososatsk when we were first reading the book as english speakers um, it was spelled mouse sack. <laughs> so yes, I see. I see the problem. <laughs> I'm sitting there. We're sitting there going, there's this druid named mouse sack. Does he carry mice? What is, is he made of mice? Like what is, what's going on here? So, you know, for things like that, we kind of had to go with, okay, you know, maybe, maybe, He's using Mosasatska as his traveling name or something, but in some cases we're just kind of like, okay, we're just going to go with the change because it would be a little too weird to to merge it. Sure. One of the weird indiscrepancies that we came across, which is in the games, you're running around, you're fighting monsters. Every town you go to has, you know, a billboard and there's monsters that are terrorizing the town in some way or another. You know, you can't ride roach for more than a few minutes without seeing ghouls or something. But, you know, one of the things that anyone who's read the books, but, you know, a lot of people who have played the games won't really realize is that in the canon of the novels, most of the monsters are gone uh, to a point where to a point where there's actually a story in Blood of Elves, I believe. There's a section in Blood of Elves where Geralt is on is has taken this job as like a ferryman or something or a guard of a ferry to lure somebody out and he has this entire discussion with a a uh, an academy man from Oxenford, I believe. It's either Oxenford or Novigrad. Anyway, and you know, he's talking about some monster that he heard was here. And the academy, you know, the professor is just going, you know, no, that's that's just a myth. Nothing like that has ever existed. It never will exist. And Geralt's going, no, it exists. It's just mostly dead. So later in the story, when it shows up and Geralt is wading into this, you know, this horrible, mucky, boggy river to fight this monster... You know, the the scholar is going, My God, Master Geralt, it's real. You you were you were telling the truth. I'll alert the scholars immediately. We'll have it named after you. And Geralt's going, It's already got a name. It was always real. <laughs> Don't rename it after me. <laughs> that would be awful. Wait, so okay, now you're actually really raising something that's super important here for another type of audience member. And yeah. that is like the D D typical fantasy player that says okay i want to try a different you know i want to try a different setting i want to try a richer witcher the monsters here 
completely different. Like there's yeah. trolls and stuff, sure, but their entire like the way you can relate to them completely different than your typical dungeon crawl. Yeah, we're like like we did the little playtest in the or not the playtest. We did this the story in the back, and there's this whole yeah. section about talking with the troll, which would never happen in your you know typical Pathfinder or D and D game. You just attack the monster and kill it. Cody, I'm telling you, they completely killed the troll. I mean, I even prepared him. We talked about parlay conversations. What did these guys do? They just went crazy. Set traps. They had a whole game plan to kill the troll. Heck, I even had the troll talk to them, kind of like, hello, homies. But to no avail, he died um, at the hands of my merciless party. You know, we did chat a little bit, and one of our members, Nighthawk, that was playing with us, you know, was like, yeah, I kind of remember in the game, you could talk to some of the monsters, and he kind of remembered maybe a troll sequence. Well, I think that's kind of the interesting, you know, that's kind of the interesting dichotomy about Witcher to some extent, in that, you know, there are definitely monsters that you just have to kill. You know, if you run into a ghoul or something like that, you just have to kill it. You're not going to be able to converse with it. You know, one of the things that we sort of underscore about about Witcher is that a lot of these monsters are, you know, perfectly sentient creatures. You know, when we were going through and talking, you know, what we learn in Witcher 2 and we talk about a bit in the books is that bridge trolls, for instance, they're called bridge trolls because people have the tendency to just pay them to maintain bridges. For some dang reason, they're really good at building things. Yes. So they'll they'll maintain a bridge, they'll put the bridge back together, they'll, you know, hurt anybody who tries to get across the bridge who isn't, you know, who the townsfolk don't want in the town. So it's this weird sort of situation where a lot of these monsters are perfectly reasonable and can, you know, exist in society. And in a way, they are just slightly more monstrous people. One of the things that, you know, I like to really kind of point out uh, that, you know, is a really interesting way to think about it is the reason that monsters, you know, they hammer this home in the books a lot, is that the reason that these monsters are dangerous is because they were taken, most of them, from another dimension, and they don't have an ecological niche anymore. So they've had to find a new ecological niche. So half of the reason that these monsters are dangerous is because they just got dropped into this place that they are not familiar with, and they're trying to function as if they were in their home, but they're not in their home anymore. Some of those are like, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but there's a monster that shows up in... um, one of the one of the short stories used to live in like boggy marshes and stuff, and now it lives in trash heaps. And it's dangerous because it's living in that trash heap, and it attacks people who come and drop stuff in the trash heap. But that's because that's all it really knows. Right, it's defending its home. It thinks, okay, I, this is now where I have to live, and there's all these people who keep coming here, and I need to get rid of them because I need a safe home. Yeah, it's things like, you know, Maybe not trolls necessarily, but, you know, grave hags, for instance, you know, we see this with vampires, but it could be with grave hags. For all we know, grave hags could have been the dominant species in whatever dimension they came from. So they've just been dropped here. They're now, you know, an extreme minority in this world that they don't understand. And yeah, you know, a lot of these, they're functioning at higher levels of the food food chain just because of the way they are. Um, and, you know, we kind of react to that poorly because they're not like elves or dwarves where 
they're human enough that you can kind of forget that. Right. You know, they they talk about the two other species that we don't see really anymore, which are the Vran and the Boboak. And the Boboak are these little hairy sort of beaver-like people. Nice. And the Vran are kind of the classic big sort of hulking lizard men. Mm -hmm. And both of those species were completely sentient with their own societies and cities and things like that. But, you know, arguably because they're not as human looking as elves or dwarves, they got just almost clean wiped out. You know, the point where you barely see them like anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, to some extent, a lot of the monsters that you are dealing with, you know, when you're dealing with those trolls or the, you know, the higher vampires or things like that, you're basically dealing with, you know, what would happen if you yourself were dropped into another dimension where you don't know how to function. You see all these people, but maybe those people are not like what you're used to. Maybe they are even much like what you used to feed on. And you're just kind of dealing with that. And there are also these weird ones like, um, succubi where you know if you really stop and you look at the lore of the succubi in witcher most of them don't actually want to hurt humans they just get overexcited and don't understand the uh <laughs> it's it's funny but it's actually kind of horrifying they get overexcited and they just don't understand the limitations of a human Right. So in most of the cases, if they kill somebody, they they were not expecting to kill them. You know, they were not looking to kill them. It just so happens that they don't know the physical limitations of a human when they're with them. Yeah. It's the old, you know, the mermaid drags you underwater because it thinks you can breathe water because, of course, you can breathe water uh, situation. Right. Okay. Oh, I, I got a question. You know, if I was putting together another group... And, you know, we had someone that read one of the books and we had someone that played half the game and then someone like me that, you know, I just watched some YouTubes hit us with one book that would make the primer for jumping into the world of Witcher RPG. If I if you could only read one book. Yeah, I'm forcing you. The, to the thing is, gosh. It would have to be a, one of the one of the short story series because while the while the novels themselves are really amazing for telling Geralt's story. Right. I've found that the short story series are better for getting a feel for the world itself. Oh, neat. I would act because you, you sort of see glimpses of Geralt's life as he is doing his job as a witcher. Weirdly enough, I would probably choose Sword of Destiny, which is the second short story series, because Sword of Destiny follows sort of follows Geralt's life through a number of periods and you see a lot of like you see towns you see how sort of like kings interact you see a lot of different sort of segments of life you know there are times where you see Geralt passing through a town and Sapkowski describes the town so you get a more feeling for how the town is functioning so I would probably say sort of destiny like if you really want to be involved in the plot line I would probably say last wish because Last Wish is really good for just sort of getting you into what Geralt's all about. And then if you really want to get involved in the whole Elder Blood thing, it would be Blood of Elves, because that's where they introduce Ciri and all that jazz. But yeah, it'd have to be one of the short story series. Excellent. The only, 
For those listening, there is tons of material in the book itself. I mean, as I was prepping, you you know, the book just came out and I had to kind of gloss over that background material because I was focusing on how combat works, how we're going to do skill checks. Yeah, you guys have have been credited with really unearthing a lot of great lore for folks that are into this. To some extent, that was that was largely the goal, because, you know, to some extent, the problem with the video games and the novels is that you are more or less focusing on one person. Right. You know, more or less, you're focusing on Geralt. So you're going to learn Geralt's story. You're going to see Kaer Morhen. You're going to see the Northern Kingdoms because he travels through them most. But, you know, I sat down at one point, I looked at a map, and I said, you know, I want to give people the opportunity to, A, play, you know, play the character they want to play, and you know, really explore the world. So, you know, we, we came across two things, which was, you know, right off the top, which was the first one was, I want to play a witcher. Okay, you can play a witcher. <laughs> you are a wolf school witcher because we don't really know anything about any of the other schools of witcher. That wouldn't work. Right. You know, I, we needed to give at least enough information that you could say, you know, I'm a Griffin school witcher. I come from this place. I was trained here. I was trained like this. You know, you need enough that you could branch out in Witchers. I sat down with the lead story writer at CDPR, and we worked out where all the schools should be located. And then I sat down and cross-referenced all of the Witcher gear in Witcher 3 and was like, okay, so... Here's everything we know about the school from lore. Here's everything that the armor does. So they probably are trained like this. They probably function like this. Wow. wow. That's almost like archaeology where you're sitting there looking at, at relics and, at, and objects and saying, okay, if it's designed like this, that means that there were iterations before it that led to this, to this design. Oh, yeah. Well, we did even more because, you know, the second part of that was, you know, we looked at a map and said, you know, okay, we know about the Northern Kingdoms. And then, you know, one day I had, we had that fateful moment of looking at a Witcher map and going, man, the Northern Kingdoms is about one third of this map. <laughs> you know, Nilfgaard covers two thirds of this map. We need to do something about Nilfgaard because they're going to you know, if even if nobody in your party wants to come from Nilfgaard, they're going to want to go there eventually. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So, of course. you know, we sat down and we we combed through everything. Lisa combed through every book for every bit of information she could find about any of the the uh, the provinces. We actually had a meeting, one entire meeting where we sat down, we took the map and we basically looked at the geographical locations of the countries and tried to extrapolate from there what the country would be like and how the country would function. So we'd say like, okay, we know that Gamerians, for instance, are often seen as mad dogs. We know of like four Gamerians in the books and two of them are just horrible sadists. We know that they often tend to be rather large and we know that they live in sort of what has to be sort of a foothill terrain going up into the mountains. So we'd sit down and we'd extrapolate and we'd go, okay, so they probably don't have a ton of, of grazing land. So we had a whole bunch of stuff about them being herders and, you know, they're near the mountains. So they probably have a lot of mining and stuff like that. So we'd sit down and we had this whole meeting where we just went over all the way down to the geography because there was so little information, but at the same time, we didn't want to just come out and go like, we didn't want to fabricate things whole cloth. 
Yeah. We didn't want to just say, you know, this and this and this and never have an explanation for why we said that. We wanted to be able to say, okay, we said this because they live in this environment. We said this because in, you know, on page 45 of book three, somebody <laughs> said this about them. Wow, what an experience. I mean, dude, literally, if I'm making up an RPG, it's going to be called Rootslandia. And I could just make everything fit night. You know, the horse people are out on the grass, and then there's mountains where there's a fire and a big you know, volcano. You guys just had to go through a ton of material. Oh, yeah. Dave, I, God, I feel kind of bad skimming over some of that stuff. But to some extent, we put it there for that reason. You know, not everybody is going to go through everything in the book, but... You know, if someday you look up and say, well, dang, one of my characters wants to be from, you know, Vicovaro, you will be able to flip to the section about Vicovaro and roughly tell them what their country is about. So we wanted to have it such that if you had that situation or maybe you wanted to do something in Angren, you would be able to flip through and go, okay, here's some reliable information about that region. We wanted to really say that even if you weren't buying this book for the system, or maybe you're a video gamer or a collector who's buying it because you love Witcher, but you're never sitting down and planning on playing it, you know, even if, and my pride can take this blow, I'm sure there are a lot of people who are still going to, you know, run this using D&D 5 or something like that, because, you know, the system is very different. Even it is very different. Yes. From the D&D world over to this, we, we, we had our first couple scenes of combat were very slow until we started to feel the flow. Once you get a hang of it, it goes fast. I like yeah. to say that basically you can figure out the basics in a few minutes, but the level of complexity can scale as much as you sort of want it to. But All that. Yeah, but like, um, you know, I know there are a lot of people who are going to, or maybe, for instance, you've been doing like a two-year D&D 5 Witcher game. I want you to be able to buy this book so well, you can use it as a source. You know, right. you don't even have to use the setting or the, you don't even have to use the, the rules. You could just buy this as a source book. Yeah. You know, that being said, I did literally years of work to make this a good system for running Witcher, yeah. but you know. Right, right. Well, I mean, you've got this sense of grim, grim fantasy all throughout the lore and setting information. Like even your, uh, even your playthrough in the back, the adventure in the back is like, Oh, this human, he like pours metal down people's throats to kill them. It's like, all right, that's a bad person. <laughs> like he doesn't just kill people. He kills them in a horrific way. And, and, you know, you take that kind of approach to making it dark and in the system itself, if we can kind of pivot to the system. Go ahead. That really allows for a lot of kind of brutal moments. Oh, 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 oh the critical tables, the critical tables. Dude, who came up with that flavor material? Cody, I had such a great time just reading out. You have a sucking chest wound. Uh, who can we blame for that? Well, one of the things I, I really, really wanted to have that critical system because, A, you know, I wanted to be able to give people who had played the video games the same satisfaction you got from the cutscene kills and whatnot. But at the same time, I, you know, I, gosh, I really don't mean to throw shade at AC systems because I play a lot of Pathfinder, but I do not feel that, I've never felt that, like, Witcher should be sort of the 
you know, two people run in, I hit you, you hit me, I hit you, you hit me. One of us eventually runs out of hit points. That's, <laughs> right. that's good for some settings, but it really doesn't fit Witcher. We wanted to get that feeling of, you know, the sort of pinpoint brutality that you see in the books, that you see in the video games. So, you know, if you run in and, you know, it's not I hit you, you hit me. It's maybe I hit you and I roll well enough. So I, you know, I shatter your your left femur or something. And I want you to be able to, A, if you went down, you could go down. You could have that real sort of like, you know, Boromir death sort of situation where you go down, but you went down in a really spectacular way. Oh, yeah. Or if you don't go down... You get out of a fight and you, you know, you can now look back and go, remember that time that bandit got a really good critical and shot you in the lung? And your your other party member can go, yeah, thanks for keeping bringing that up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, so here's, here's my big takeaway on that is you really allow for two types of sword fights to take place based on the character. You can have the strong attack, the big brute that's just going to force his way through your armor and eventually just crush you. And then you can also have great room in here for the skilled sword fighter who isn't doing as much damage, but man, when he breaches your armor, it's a crit and it's going to suck. You know, you're be you're going to be losing a lot of blood. You've lost bone. You know, you've got real problems and that's one of the things about this that as as we were playing through, I was like, wow, I could really make two completely different sword fighters. Both of them would be very valid. And if they ever faced off against one another, it would be it would be like cinematically very interesting to play through because you're not it's not a passive defense system. It's an active defense system, which means that when I defend myself, I have choices on how I'm going to defend myself and what position I'm going to do. Like when I went through reading through this stuff, I very quickly thought about Princess Bride, where yeah. you've got the brute who can sit, who can crush you with a rock. And if he touches you, it's going to hurt and you're you might not make it <laughs> if he gets a hand on you. You might not make it. But if you're quick and lied, you're able to you're able to respond or you've got the two skilled fighters. That are facing off against each other in the in the you know in that in the Princess Bride there's that scene where West yeah, yeah. climb the cliff and they're fighting and they oh they're both actually right handed and they're in the runes. I immediately when you talk about dodging, repositioning, parrying, quick attack, strong attack, spending stamina to do a extra attacks to maybe force your opponent to dodge into an advantageous position for you. I immediately thought, wow, you could really have a very dynamic fight where someone could have that, I'm a swordsman, you're a swordsman, we're having this contest, and at the same time, because there's extra time here, because it's an active defense system, you can have a dialogue with your opponent while you're fighting one another. I, really, I, I love that, just as I was reading through it, that's kind of where my mind went, that you could have completely different styles here and really enjoy it. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, we really focused on that because on one hand, you know, I wanted to give people, you know, I wanted to give people the, the you know, big dude in heavy armor with a giant sword and, you know, you're running in and because of your armor, you know, you're not going to take a lot of damage and you're throwing those, you know, basically huge two-handed attacks, which get even bigger if you're a man-at-arms. And, you know, if you hit somebody, 
they're gone. Like, <laughs> you know, the, the trade-off there is that you are a lot slower. So a lot of the damage that you're going to take is critical damage, which will whittle you down over time. Basically, you, you won't take a lot of weapon damage, but you will get more of that critical damage. That means that you could walk out of that fight, but you will sort of have a bit more of a ticking clock. Where if you're playing that, you know, really light armored, you know, finesse character, you're much less likely to get hit. You're much more likely to get those, you know, those pinpoint strikes and criticals and things like that. But there is always that knowledge that the minute you get hit, it's going to be really bad. So we wanted to kind of map that. We wanted to map characters like, you know, Geralt and fights, you know, some of the fights he's been in where, you know, in the books, most of the fights Geralt's are, Geralt is in are done really quick. You know, there's this, this great scene in uh, one of the short stories that, uh, you know, is in, it's in Last Wish, uh, spoilers for Last Wish, um, where Geralt is in this town, and this is the first time you really see that Geralt is, is a complete badass. Geralt is in this town, and he is opposing this, uh, this bandit queen and her eight bandits, who are like the most fearsome bandits in the entirety of the Northern Kingdoms. And he has been trying to solve this, you know, diplomatically for like a day now, and he finally realizes he can't. And these eight bandits like run at him, weapons out, and he just draws his sword, and in the space of eight seconds, he kills all eight of them. He just cuts arteries and moves on to the next guy. And, My you know, guy. in the space of eight seconds, he kills these eight tremendously skilled bandits and then, you know, goes after, you know, goes after the, the bandit princess. But he wanted to have that basically, you know, at that level of skill, you're not just sort of swinging at people. You are hitting those arteries. You are rupturing those organs. You are specifically aiming for those joints, things like that. So my goal is that when you get to like, say, for instance, you started with like a 10 reflex and you get your swordsmanship up to 10, you know, you wade into a fight with a base 20 swordsmanship and you're fighting a bandit with like a base 12, you know, dodge. Right. You take them apart. And it's not a major concern because you're fairly guaranteed that with your skill, you're going to get some manner of critical on them and just take them apart. Right. It's just not you roll a 20 and it's a crit. Oh, I got a 20. Oh, it's a critical. It's like seven over the target, 10 over the target. It keeps going and the crit charts keep getting worse. Oh, it was fun stuff. When they rolled high and we were able to kind of play with that. You know, another thing that kind of hit me was, I noticed we were playing with D10 and D6 um, only in this system. And there's other ones that are D10s. There's other ones that are D6s. You know, what was up with the mix of those two? Um, D10, D6 is generally how Telstorian does dice. It usually works, uh, you know, in a situation. And part of the reason we like it is you can throw a lot of D6 and get sort of a fairly, a fairly widespread of numbers. And also D6s tend to be the easiest dice to find, so you can right. get a lot of them for damage. D10, part of the reason, at least I really like D10, is that it narrows, it narrows the scale, which makes for really dynamic combat. You know, in, in, a, in a D20 system, you've basically got like a 2 in 20 chance, like a, you know, a 1 in 10 chance that something 
really sort of dramatic is going to happen. You either fumble or you're critical. In a D10 system, it's it's that two in ten. Basically, twenty percent of the time, something really good or really bad is going to happen. So it has that sort of keeping you on your toes of any minute you could roll a fumble. And that could lead you into, you know, I've had situations, I had one really painful situation where one of my players was fighting a a wolf and they, you know, they were a doctor, but they were really fairly, you know, solid. They were pretty hardy. They didn't really feel like they had a lot of threat there. And then they rolled a fumble. And then they roll a critical. So they got like a negative 14. And this wolf, and this wolf rolls a critical and it gets like, a 12 or something and i'm just sitting there and i look at this my poor player and i go the wolf lunges up and i roll on the critical table the wolf lunges up and it just bites into your arm at the elbow and just like rends it off oh god <laughs> so you really don't have sort of that it's fun because you don't have that sort of like comfort zone of you know there's that kind of wider range but at the same time that means that your likelihood of rolling really high is also pretty high. So at any minute, you could roll a critical, and that critical could be really, you know, really awesome. I wanted to add into this critical discussion that your criticals are based on skill, not yes. just random luck, which I, I love. I love that people can just be so good at a thing that they're getting criticals on people because they're really good at doing it. Yeah. It's fun the other way, but we wanted to reflect that if you were getting those criticals, it's because of your skill or in some cases your luck. Right. You know, as someone who has spent, you know, a certain amount of time in, you know, uh, Kendo, in Iaido, um, and a lot of time fighting with my roommates out in the, out in the woods. <laughs> heck, um, yeah, heck yeah. You know, I, you realize that combat, well, the weird part about combat is... A lot of it, especially in melee, comes down to speed and skill. Weirdly enough, even strength is not that important if you're a lot faster and a lot more skilled than your opponent. You know, I spar with a lot of my roommates, and I'm the only one who has really sort of a, an actual arm martial art background. So for many, many months, I had, you know, most of my roommates were barely a threat to me because I had that mentality and that skill that I could, you know, reasonably tell what they were going to do and counterattack. Or, you know, with a, with a somewhat superior speed, I could overwhelm them with a multitude of strikes. So we wanted to reflect that, yeah, your skill is really, really sort of the, the, the X factor, quote unquote, in your combat. Yeah. And and that definitely comes out in the system itself. Like when you look at this, you can tell that somebody who does not have skill in martial combat should not be participating (laughs) at all because their likelihood of getting themselves in a deep hole is so much higher than someone who even has like a modicum of skill, you know, just enough skill to like figure out how to defend yourself is it's pretty apparent in this system that. The folks out there that have no business being in a sword fight, if they're in a sword fight, they're not lasting very long at all. Oh, yeah. Well, also, we wanted to one of the things we wanted to get, which is another thing about having that sort of dark fantasy setting is between the criticals and the healing, we wanted to establish two things. A, if you don't have to fight, you probably shouldn't. Hey, everyone. 
So this will conclude part one of our interview with Cody talking about the Witcher RPG. Next week, we're going to kick it off with part two, really picking up where we're leaving off, talking about the lethality of the system, that kind of good stuff. It'll be a lot of fun. I'm going to go ahead and edit in Cody's sign-off. That way, anybody who's interested can hear all the different ways to get engaged with Arthosaurian Games and the Witcher RPG community that they've been putting together. Folks that are interested in this and want to get engaged and want to get plugged in with Arl Telsurian oh my and God, you in this project. I'm not following the Cody Twitter. Oh yeah. <laughs> how how do how do people reach out to you? So we have a an Artelsorian Games Facebook site uh, where we have a, I think we actually have a fan group set up specifically for Witcher. We're on Discord at Artelsorian, I believe. I saw that. We recently our, our social media god Jay recently set that up. We are at Artelsorian on a WordPress, and we also have a Shopify site for other books. We do sort of periodic updates every once in a while on the WordPress and on the Shopify blog. But it sounds like, from what Jay is saying, that the, the Facebook and the Discord are really sort of the most, the most hopping for sort of fan interaction. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by me, David Gillespie, with music provided by Taylor Guillory. Our web presence is managed by Amy Nelson. And if you like our style, please leave a review for us on iTunes. It's the best way to help people find us. Most importantly, though, feel welcome to connect with us on Twitter, our Facebook group, Discord server, our Friday night Twitch streams, and our website, all under the name High Shelf Gaming. We really look forward to talking and playing games with you. Thank you.